Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Danny Cesario as my guest here in our studio. Danny is an internationally licensed architect, project manager, founder, and public speaker. Originally from Manchester, England, Danny spent most of her childhood between the U.S. and England. She developed her passion for architecture at the age of six, and now with over a decade of experience, she is currently an associate at Skidmore Owings and Merrill, leading mixed-use developments, healthcare, and wellness projects. Her passion for architecture and advocacy has led her to become a champion for design professionals and sought-after speaker. Her experience working in diverse global environments has yielded speaking engagements at numerous conferences and events, including the United Nations, South by Southwest, the Royal Institute of British Architects, the AIA National Conference, and the New York Building Congress. Danny served as the chair of AIA New York's Diversity and Inclusion Committee for over five years. She currently serves on the AIA New York State Board and as a contributor slash ambassador to national and international organizations such as the United Nations, Beverly Willis Foundation, and many more. Danny is dedicated to fostering mentorship, sponsorship, and leadership among the design community as they navigate their careers within architecture and beyond. She founded Whalen and Dobb to expand on these principles. She is also the mom of two beautiful girls. I see them on Instagram all the time, which is most important. Danny, I'm super excited to have you here and have this conversation and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Christian, for having me. Absolutely. All right. So let's get right into some of the fun stuff and then, you know, let's have a conversation about kind of everything about you. So if you had to pick one thing that annoys you about your uh, fellow architects, what might that be? I'm going to have to show my face back in my office, so I'll be (laughs) careful with that one. I'm joking. Um, I think what I've I've observed, right, as a fellow architect as well, is um, sometimes I think that we can be a bit formulaic with our approach to things, a bit rigid. And I think that the time that we're in has forced us to be more flexible. And our clients have asked us to be much more agile nowadays. You know, it's not the same format, Um that many people are used to. And I think if you've been in, in this industry for, you know, 20 years and so on, it it sometimes is daunting for you to change that. Um, so I think sometimes what is not uh, as favorable for architects is the fact that sometimes we can be very rigid. And <laughs> unfortunately, the, the uh, supporting industries around us uh, have cottoned on to the fact that they need to be much more agile and adaptable. Um, and I think sometimes it sort of leaves us in the dust. Yeah, I would agree. So do you think that, do you think that architecture, architects, even though as competitors should share more information and kind of what they're doing about how we could be less rigid? For sure. I think we could be a lot more communicative about our processes. Um, not all of our clients have been, you know, building in New York City specifically for, you know, decades, right? So we have a certain shorthand. We have a litany of acronyms that we refer to. <laughs> and I think sometimes it can be really alienating for people who are new to the processes. And um, I think sometimes that's a little bit of a loss, You know, I think if we were sort of more open, which is what I try and do about what it is we actually do on the day to day and uh, not make it so like sort of what we see in movies, right, where there's an architect off in the corner and they just brood mysteriously and they (laughs) draw things, you know, frenetically and, you know, but nobody knows what they actually do. I think it would be it would be super helpful. I think we'd be able to onboard more people who'd be interested in our profession. And I think it would demystify for a lot of the people who are our clients and our colleagues and our, you know, even our consultants to understand are what we're going through and why we care about it. Yeah, I've had clients where they really know 
they truly understand the process mm -hmm. and they, they kind of know everything about it, arguably more than I know, right? Yeah. Um, which sometimes doesn't necessarily make them the best client. Uh, and then I've had clients that, you know, have only remodeled their kitchen in their personal life, but yet are in charge of building out some massive facility, right? And they yeah. don't know the process whatsoever, right? And so it's a, uh, it is interesting. To ha how do we better educate, you know, clients as we go, and then in general in the profession? I, I think that's a that's a really valid point. So, you know, in your opinion, is there is there anything broken with the the general process in which we we deliver projects? I think that we're looking at it now. I think IDP um, caused us to look inward at some of our processes. Like, why are we sort of creating drawings in more of a siloed setting than working across the table with people who are actually going to build it and working with, you know, working in a more integrated approach overall to the project. Mm -hmm. um, and... I think it's forced us to really question some of the processes we go through. Like, why does it have to be, you know, concept and then schematic and then, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and I think the more that we blur the lines, the more that we can, as architects, educate ourselves. Because if you're perpetuating this detail, right, for instance, a wall detail that, you know, our, our GCs and our subs are realizing, you know, there's a, there might be a better way of doing this. And then we can sort of go in between to speak to each other during the design process and find a way that works for what the client ultimately wants and is also something that's going to be long lasting and also beautiful. You know, I think that there would be, that, that would be so much better. Um, Design build is something that's been on a lot of our radars, especially, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're seeing it. it's mm -hmm. taking forever to get materials. We're having to protect the materials we do have on site because, you know, they go, they go walkabouts. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that we, we are charged to work in a more concurrent sort of schedule, which, mm -hmm. you know, we, we're having to do a lot more overlapping and just thinking way ahead because you know just because you want x doesn't mean that x is going to be available with the longer lead times so um i think that we can we can teach a lot like the the education has to work both ways yeah. there are teachable moments to our clients to our consultants and we can also learn quite a lot from them as well it just needs to be a lot more open communication yeah open communication is key especially in IPD, inter Integrated Project Delivery yes. and Design Build. Yeah, I went right? with an acronym That's like right. that. Yeah. <laughs> but when you, and, and so, you know, I'm working on a proposal literally right now for a very large project. And, you know, it's, if it were to go, we, we've talked about it being more of a design build. We've talked about maybe a different project approach, but yet I'm putting the proposal together in the very traditional method, right? Mm -hmm. But if we really could iron those details out, the developer would actually save money in the end and get a better product. But because of the way that things move and, and sort of in our industry, you always revert back to sort of the, the, the traditional method. And I'm not sure kind of how we can change that unless, as you were saying, we start early on in the education process. Like, hey, this is a different way of doing it. And people kind of come out of school knowing this stuff. Exactly. I mean, the traditional method is tried and true, right? We've built cities. We, I mean, you look out the window and you see an entire skyline that has been, uh, has its foundations in the traditional process, right? So it's hard to sort of go back and question these things, these, these mm -hmm. new ideas, these opportunities for innovation, because we don't really know enough about it. So it's high stakes, you know, in a, in a place like New York City, it's, it's time, it's money, all, all of that. And you want to be able to do the best possible, create the best possible project um, around all of those parameters. But you might not always have the sort of leeway that you would like to have that, that <laughs> those, you know, teachable moments. You don't want a situation where, you know, you've tried this new way and it, let's say it doesn't work out. And then it's like, okay, you know, th then, then it's, I think that architects sort of, uh, work from this fear of disappointment, you know? It's mm, a good point. So, I mean, <laughs> we're trying our best to have these conversations earlier and to answer the questions that our clients ask as to why we're doing it this way. What is what is concept design? Um, you know, and it's, it's not to downplay our clients at all. It's not that they are, you know, uneducated or all novice or things like that. But I think 
opening up the doors as to why we do certain things and what are the uh, milestones that we need to meet as the designers ultimately would be helpful. When you say the fear of disappointment, architects work in the out of the, the fear of disappointment. Um, it's interesting. So how do you mean? Is it disappointing themselves, disappointing the client? What what is your and what's your experience with that? I think I mean, we we envision things. We have an idea, right? We put it down to paper and then this this concept grows into being a 3D piece of art essentially. And I think unlike other creative fields where, you know, you, you have, let's say a painting, you pass it over and you, for the most part, there's not much follow-up. Our pieces of art, our creativity is something that people have to live with for decades. So, you know, in the design process, when you, you get the job, let's say, and then you've gone through, through two years, let's say, of design, and then eventually it's built, you're actually dealing with something that you've you've thought about five years in advance and then how does this idea age mm -hmm. right yeah. so when i say that we we work from a fear of disappointment we are charged as architects to care about health safety and welfare and we are have it we as a trade have to project way into the future how are people going to experience these spaces that we've created you know we're idealists yeah. we want everything to work <laughs> out we do um and to you know be, we, we're we're also very vested in the finer details you know like how a wall meets the ground how a wall meets the floor to us is really really important we've got an entire series of drawings in our in our cd sets that are committed to these like finer details but how do we also zoom out? And, you know, when we see these details that we've spent hours working on and it's not necessarily what we've envisioned, that's the sort of like in a, on a minute scale, the fear of disappointment that mm -hmm. we experience. Like, you know, is our client going to be happy? Are we going to be happy with what we ultimately produce? But we're, we're so far away from where we start like the inception of this idea to point. when we actually see it yeah when you so live it yeah we when you have to live through it so that's why i mean by like we operate from the fear of disappointment in ourselves in like what's ultimately going to happen down the road because as we all know very well now you can plan and you can plan <laughs> and it can end up being something completely different from what you imagined yeah. and then how do we how do we deal with that do we internalize a disappointment or do we remain agile and then try and deal with what we've what we've been given yeah and i can say that over my the span of my career right when i think about the disappointment in things mm -hmm. right the 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 my i would say that as the designer on the project it was really more about disappointing myself right mm -hmm. i always had these aspirations of doing these amazing things now on the ownership side of the company right i don't want to disappoint the client and it's amazing how i've taken almost a completely different shift along the way and i think if people listen to this, your perspective changes as you move through your career. And who knows, mine might go back to another perspective as it, as it goes. For sure. I think um, it's really dependent on the role in which you, you operate within the field. Like as a project manager, I'm sort of on both sides, right? You know, we're managing up, we're managing down, we're managing sideways. Like in a given day, I can speak to like the comptroller of our company. I'll be speaking to legal. <laughs> I will be speaking to, you know, the one of the more junior designers on a given day, you know, speaking to everybody within the company. And I think having that level of um, access to people who are diversely diversely educated diversely and when i say educated i'm not talking about in school i'm talking more about their experience yeah. um and like where people are coming from like it's it's an interesting crossroads at som because you've got people coming from all sorts of works of walks of life and different places you know it's a it's an international firm and i think it's it's evident with the many people that I personally get to work with. Sure. And I didn't necessarily have that purview before um, working as a project manager. Like I didn't, you don't, when you, when you're, when you're operating as an architect on the design side, right? Often you're sort of boxed into your team and you don't necessarily get to see sort of the the business operations yeah. behind the company. It's a different level of investment 
I think having my basis in architecture has added to how I experience and how I operate as a project manager because I can understand and see and be vested in all sides. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I agree. It's a different perspective in each role that you have. Mm -hmm. And especially in the project manager, now you're responsible for not only delivering the project, but the finances of the project, of course. which is something that you're, I don't know, we'll talk about your education in a minute, but I know, you know, in my education, we never talked about project finances. No. That's for sure. Um, you kind of just learn them as you go and <laughs> you hope it works out. Trial so. and error, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So why don't we, you know, I'd love to kind of get to know you better. Our audience would love to. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood in terms of growing up in both, you know, the United States and, and England and kind of how that, how and why that came about? Sure. So, um, my my so my heritage is one of people sort of leaving one place and going to another and making it work and finding out new things and setting out roots and having roots sort of um spread across oceans in a way that was that was i'm not waxing poetic at all but it's <laughs> true though um so i'll i'll start from the very beginning when my grandma was a child now, um, my, <laughs> my grandparents are part of the Windrush generation. So um, they, are, they were among the people after the Second World War who were asked by, I'll say, the mother country of England to emigrate from Jamaica to England. My grandma, my granddad had six children and they set roots in the north of England, in Birmingham specifically. And, uh, you know, eventually my, my parents came about and um, how I came to be in America. I was born in Manchester or like raised in Manchester, born in Birmingham specifically. But m most of my childhood um, in my memory was rooted in Manchester and other parts along the way. I'll get into that. So my dad worked for an international company. He worked for Kodak for a really, really long time. And he had his, a lot of his professional uh, life, most of it, I mean, he's somewhere in the city right now, has been <laughs> here in Manhattan. My mom worked in housing in, in areas like Brixton and Hackney and so on in London. And um, the opportunity came about for them to come to America through Kodak. And my dad was transferred. And um, so we came. I was about six years old when I came here. Not not quite. My sister wasn't born yet. Um, and I, I really fell in love with the skyline. As I mentioned, my dad working in the city, you know, as part of me sort of getting to know this new place and this new scale and whatnot, um, I would sometimes in the summertime come to work with him. Mm. And obviously the scale of a place like New York City versus a much more like a, of a village sort of town where I was used to. London is cosmopolitan, don't get me wrong. But, you know, there's different facets of any city. We, we lived off into the, in the, site, in the suburbs, sure. um, not far from Wimbledon. So... Uh, coming to the city, I sort of fell in love with this idea of building spaces. And I think uh, you've touched on it and we can go further with it. Living in lots of different places made me realize that people interact with homes. Like what, what my memory of a specific house is, is going to be different from the people that lived there previously, you know? Sure. So how we interact with space and what spaces mean to us became really important to me. When we moved to New York, um, I the first place we lived in was uh, South Ozone Park in Queens. Okay. <laughs> and I went to PS 124Q, mm. which was one of the schools I eventually worked on through the SCA. Cool. It was, it was really interesting because at the time, Queens was like a... a it was like the United Nations in many ways. You know, there was a little bit of everybody from all walks of life. Um, I feel like... Lots of folks kind of came in through JFK and said, you know, this, this is the place. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think living in a diverse community, which South Ozone Park was at the time, was uh, really paramount to me because back then in school, you would have like International Day where everybody would bring in a dish and so on. And you would get to learn about so many other cultures. You know, what do they do in Trinidad? And, you know, how is it in Chile? And so on. And I think that that gave me such a wealth of understanding of people um, that I think is still, it's still inherent to everything that I do now. Um, I didn't stop moving back and forth between England and uh, America 
until I was about 18 years old. So in that time frame, I've lived in, uh, I'll, I'll just list them off. I've lived in Sydney, in London. I've lived in, um, you know, Surrey. I've lived in uh, Queens, as I said, Bronx. I went to the high school in the Bronx, sure. Clinton High School. Um, I also eventually lived, I lived, well, went back to Manchester. So I was the new girl often all the time in yeah. school and being agile was super important because even though we moved quite a lot through my mom's my, my dad's job and through their quest of wanting to do what's best for the children there's three of us right my my brother my sister myself i'm the eldest i think that it gave us a certain level of exposure to the different ways that you can live in different areas and so it made me very adaptable. Like I be, being the new person means that you can do one of two things. You can be sat in the corner and just not really invest in the experience that you're having because it's new, or you can sort of dive in with both feet and just make a brand new experience for yourself that you're going to be able to reference later on. I did the second and my, my, my mom in, in her heyday was super, um, super vested in education. So even if we moved, my grades were not allowed to slip ever. Um, so it just, it meant that understanding both sides of education, like doing GCSEs, uh, doing some A-levels, doing, you know, citywide, statewide exams in the regions and all of that, it was more or less the same for me um, because there was a certain level of infrastructure that was embedded in wherever we were. Sure. Right. So, so do you, how, how aware were you of, of that, like growing up that, Hey, I can have these two options. I'm going to be the one that's the outgoing one. I'm going to make the best of every single situation. Did you consciously think that, or did it just kind of occur? I think it, I mean, I think, I don't think that as a, you know, a <laughs> six year old, you're like a pioneer on how you should, like a life coach. No, not at all. I think it came a lot from my mom. Like she's, she's one of those people that's like, okay, lemons, here are lemonade. But I mean, us, us moving was, I think to a lot of people, it would have been conceived as, as disruptive. And there were moments where it was disruptive, like moving in the middle of a school year is not <laughs> necessarily the best thing. Um, in my time at, in New York, I was part of Prep for Prep, which was a like a sort of a magnet school where they looked at the uh, results of students who were performing well in public schools and then um, put them through like a preparatory program for, you know, for for private schools mm -hmm. um, and that was probably like one thing that because of the moving I, I did miss out on but she was always sort of like you know life is something to be experienced and something that you should very much be present for sure and I think in having that having her presence throughout and my dad's presence of like that that work ethic in any kind of situation really did lend itself to me not sort of shrinking off into the corner and not experiencing these new, even daunting, you know, mm -hmm. situations. So now just skipping ahead a little bit, we'll sure. go back, but in, in kind of describing what you're talking about in terms of it, it obviously shaped who you are today. Mm -hmm. So now with your girls, right. Um, I assume you're not moving around as much. You're not going back and forth. No. What what's your thought process behind that? I mean, it, it, because obviously it shaped who you are. Do you fear that maybe their growing up is going to be too just typical? <laughs> you know what? No. I mean, the thing is, there are things that you can see like that are very tangible that are moving parts in anybody's life. And then there are things that are sort of an undercurrent. Right. Uh, this the, the pandemic for us has been. A time of transition within my family. Um, and I think the, obviously the girls have been a part of that. But I think as a parent, you have to show stability. Like I had that mm -hmm. regardless of where we lived. There was a certain standard that my mom upheld. And it was our job to sort of 
live up to that standard right you know it, it didn't matter where we were it was it was always going to be well decorated there was always going to be like <laughs> the infrastructure and i think that's probably where i get it from like i'm very big on having a guidepost and yes you do have to be agile but your children are looking to you to set the tone mm -hmm. always as you know as a parent oh, yeah. um and you create the standards for them so that they understand as they go out in the world um that you know to to us to, as parents our children are like they're our babies they're so precious but when they go out into the world eventually they are just one of <laughs> billions of people right yep. and they have to be able to operate out there so you giving them an infrastructure to work towards in the understanding that wherever they are and wherever they go they will be there will be standards that they have to meet whether it's a job a place whatever um and so i don't i try not to i don't think that because we are you know quote unquote settled or rooted <laughs> in you know our where we've lived in in and, and all of that that it, it creates too much of a typical or you know mundane lifestyle for them i i create the structure for them but i also allow a lot of experiential time for them like okay. they're involved in ballet and yeah. football or soccer whatever you want to call it um <laughs> But then we also do like a lot of fun play. Like we, during the pandemic, you may have seen this, we did these like trips because you couldn't actually go anywhere. <laughs> so like one day we'd be in like China and I would use it as a history lesson for them or we'd go to Paris. That was a big one. They still want to actually go to Paris, but you know, we'd learn about the, the, I would order food and, you know, like create an experience and we'd learn like some words in that particular language of that place. So That's great. just, just trying to make it as, fun of an experience as it possibly can but but i think the difference between my childhood and theirs is more like there is the sort of physical stability sure right sure. um but it's still the same sort of uh, logic of experience as much as you can wherever you are yeah i yeah. love that and i love that your your thought about infrastructure of growing up it's a mm -hmm. uh, it's a smart way of putting it so yeah. fascinating um so in listening to kind of a couple of your uh, your speeches and and things that you you've spoken about and written about, you know, you were you were sort of hell bent on being on your own at a very early age. Yes. Um, so, and I loved. I heard you speak about one where you know you had a bunch of odd jobs to kind of make ends meet to you know kind of live on your own. Tell us a little bit about that because it's pretty inspirational. So I come from a long line of grafters. Um, my grandparents, who I'd mentioned before, my grandma was a nurse and a hairdresser. And my granddad was a bus driver in Birmingham, as well as a mason. Um, so lots of like in in my culture and what did you call them grafters grafters like not okay. not not in a, a dodgy way at all but people who you, you don't sit about on your hands and hope for things to happen for you i don't think i've ever seen i've never seen my grandparents just chilling out i've never seen <laughs> my dad like in the daytime like just laid out on on the sofa or anything like that like there's always something to be done same you know everyone in my my family i think all of the the el the elders forgive me for saying that in my family they are they're um they're people who are doing things always so to your question i think if you want something and you you're passionate about passionate about something for me it was my independence because the the flip side of having my mom's sort of infrastructure was that and her standards meant that sometimes it, there wasn't necessarily, especially as I approached adulthood, the sort of leeway that I would like to explore and like understand and so on. And for I think for the preservation sometimes of your relationship with your parents, and I, I'm sure I'm going to experience this in <laughs> a god like 10, 15 years, um, it's important for you to go and find your own wings and figure out who you are. I think it is so important for people to figure out yeah. who they are. And it's a con the thing is, it's, it doesn't just happen when you're 18. It's a continuum. You're constantly finding out these interesting things about yourself. But I think that you have to have the space to be able to do so. Um, so my, my, uh, my multiple jobs and my sort of like leaving one, one, uh, shift to go to another was because I, in my mind, I've always wanted to live in Manhattan. 
And at the time it was sort of like, okay, my, my parents have two other children. They've got their own lives. And I felt like it was sort of up to me if I wanted it to go after it. And I strongly believe still to this day that if there's something that you're after, if there's something that you're super passionate about, if you are, if you show that you're willing to do the work, help will come, yeah. the support will come, the things will come, but you have to, you have to sort of, you have to get up and, and be actionable about it. Yeah. So um, for me, that sort of started back then. And uh, I worked one summer when I was in school, I'd, I'd moved from my parents' house out to Convent Avenue, which is across the street from my alma mater, because I realized I was being inefficient with how much time I spent traveling back and forth each day to New Jersey. Um, so I figured I'd have more time in studio to work on my projects and more time to be able to really invest in the education that I was going through, the, the vigorous five-year program that so many of your other guests have spoken <laughs> about um, in getting a Bachelor's of Architecture. So in moving, I realized that I needed to create a way for me to be able to focus in during the semester on the 18 to whatever, 21 credits I would be taking each semester to, because I wanted to graduate on time. It was mm -hmm. really important to me. So it was, I in the summer times was my time to sort of plant those seeds, right? So I remember the summer I moved into New York, I worked at uh, Blockbuster, which... <laughs> the children probably won't remember but this is before netflix took over you would go and rent videos i worked at blockbuster i worked um also as a as a um like a office manager in a expediting company okay i also worked for cutco um which we sell knives i think oh, if yeah. you live in the suburbs you, oh, everybody's yeah, got a cutco block uh -huh. i may have sold it to you <laughs> and um i also did like side cad work nice. and so i think working in lots of different it's not that dissimilar now from me and my my involvement in lots of different organizations yeah. and pulling from all of those different experiences to understand things and my profession and people ultimately better yeah it all goes into that pool of experiences exactly. that make you better at kind of anything and everything you do so that's the hope yeah. <laughs> All right. So switching gears a bit, mm -hmm. um, I had Samantha Medina on from uh, on this podcast from uh, Studio Three Nine Seven. I don't know if you guys know each other, very but well. uh, yes. okay, Sam, yeah. So yeah. you were both featured on on Madam Architect, and both very impressive in terms of your accomplishments early on in your career. So Samantha is the three hundred ninety seventh Black female architect in history. You are the three hundred thirty third. So you got her beat. Um, if I was good at math, I'd. I don't know. I figure that out. It's only because of the chronology. I'm significantly <laughs> older than uh, than than dear Sam. <laughs> so you know, I, I guess my 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 question here is that there's very few. Um, it's only two percent of our profession is African American licensed architects. So very very few. Um, you know, what does it mean to you? to be a woman of color in the industry. And then I, I guess more importantly, how does it empower you? Because you and Samantha both, and kind of everyone I've spoken to about this, mm -hmm. um, see it as an empowering thing and an advantage. So talk a little bit about that and your but thoughts. It goes back to what you were saying before about like, you can either think, you can either take the mantle of this is awful, so I'm just gonna moan about it, right? <laughs> or you can actually do something about it. And I think the charge of being one of a few when you look at it when you look at the percentages and so on is what are you actually doing with your position right i'm not fond of tokenism that that is a real thing like you know i i have seen examples of okay well you are the one anomaly so it will there are cases where some firms might take the position of trotting out the one anomaly and saying hey look we're diverse mm -hmm. but there are there are other experiences I've had more recently at SOM where there are people who are ultimately wanting to see change and wanting to see, you know, us as black female architects get way beyond the minimal numbers that we have. We're, yeah. I think, in the 500s now. Yeah. Um, but we, I mean, in, in comparison to our other, um, other, other counterparts, we would want we would want the more representation, obviously, but that means that we all have to work together, right? The the 
institutions for one, like I know AIA, um, NOMA, which I'm, I'm actually heading out from here to go over to the NOMA conference in D Detroit. Okay. Um, they're vested in, in seeing those numbers change, right? Yeah. Um, but I think it takes all of us actually doing the work and not just saying, okay, these numbers are abysmal and, you know, um, taking the stance of, well, we're not welcome here and so on. A lot of these, these experiences are true. Don't get me wrong. But as a, as a 333rd black female architect licensed living, so on <laughs> in the United States, you have to be careful what you say. Um, you, for me anyway, I think it's important to pay it forward. And a lot of the work that I've been doing through Wallen and Dobb has been, vest, has been like really rooted in that. Um, so just in terms of like what I do, and I, I don't want to make it like super general at SOM, I'm part of the hiring committee. I'm also part of the internal NOMA committee. Um, I think it's important through all of the, the different sort of, um, in-house ERGs, like, you know, groups that, that exist within firms to take the time, hear what they're saying, see how you can push it forward. In my role in part of the NOMA committee, I report back to our internal TED committee about um, things that are coming up on our calendar, things that are should be on the radar, not just for other black and brown and BIPOC folks, but for the firm in general. Like mm -hmm. Again, education is really important. You don't know what you don't know. So when there are things that are happening through other institutions that I might be a part of, I relay that, you know, I, it's... It's an ongoing conversation. I think it's important for people to see that one, it can be done and it can be done well. Yeah. Um, and I think people like Samantha and, you know, many of the other black females in architecture that we, we have a continuum of conversations through, through social media, through like checking in with each other. There's a, there's a level of support that is there that I don't, I didn't know about when I was in school. And I wish during those times when I was, you know, wanting to change majors and wanting to, wanting to quit and wondering if it's worth it, that I knew that there was this thing on the other side. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I do is outreach to um, schools and universities and letting people know like what can be done and what is available out there because there, there is so much now that if you're super focused in on like getting your degree, it's it's sometimes a bit hard for you to like look up and, and yeah. see what's about, you know? Yeah. So it's interesting that SOM has that on an internal scale too, yeah. right? And that you're kind of leading the charge on that. It just gives me, you know, thought, you know, how do you do what you do internally there? How do we do that better in our firm? How do other firms do that? Or is there a way for you to scale you know, kind of what you're doing and, and even more outreach to existing firms? And we'll, we'll talk about kind of what you're doing with schools in, in a bit. Mm -hmm. But on the professional side, is there a way that you can reach an even bigger audience where it's not things like an email blast and things that get lost in the shuffle, right? Yeah. But things that really are meaningful and, and actionable ultimately in the end. For sure. And it's important for people to see us out there at the career fairs. I think there has been a perception of firms that are very large and very established that it's sort of like, you know, walled up to any sort of difference. And I think last year we saw we saw a lot of demonstrative uh, examples of folks that are, you know, they're, they're for the cause, right? But then we saw firms like my own who we've established an equity action committee, which my, my colleague and friend Tiara Hughes is heading up. She's also doing the first 500, uh, which is talking about like the, 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 the lack of black female architects and how can we help create that infrastructure between now and between when I got, licensed and now i've seen so many more black women get licensed because i think it's 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 very much about seeing that there are examples of women who have done it yeah against all odds yeah like it, it can be done yeah. right and we still acknowledge like sam and i chat and tiara and i chat and we acknowledge that there are these issues but instead of just taking the stance of this is never going to change we are spending a lot of the time and volunteering our free time to create these these hopefully more sustainable ways of 
onboarding more diverse experiences, more diverse people, and creating equity for the folks who are already here. Because as you probably know, in our industry, retention is a, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing to deal with. That's across the board. Across everybody. Everybody. <laughs> the grass is always greener on the other side for that, everybody. And I, I think that. <laughs> and it's tough. It's a tough, it's a tough environment. It, it really re- is. It really is. And I think that the kids are, I don't, I don't want to sound like, you know, ageist <laughs> or anything, but the people that I have met in their twenties ha- are thinking so differently about the way that they work mm-hmm. and about the ways that they want to exist. Uh, we've seen the exodus of people out from New York City to like farms in the middle of nowhere and like working remotely or choosing not to work or going off on their own. So I think that there's less of there's less of this idea of, OK, here is a clear pipeline of how you can get to where you want to be, because the last 18 months have forced us to question that and yeah. really reevaluate that. And so how do you say to somebody who has that that mindset that it is worth it to come to a firm that has a, that has an established perception of how it runs and that they will be happy and that they will be welcome and that they're going to contribute in ways that are meaningful to yeah. projects, to cities, to the skyline, to, you know, all of these different things. And I think that both the Equity Action Committee, the hiring, my position on the, the hiring committee and all of the other things I do is really to show that it does exist and for those who are still sort of like down in the doldrums and not necessarily wanting to change that there is a need to because when you look around and there's no staff there to work on your projects there's nobody to do the revit and you ask yourself why it might have a lot to do with the fact that you as a as a person who has uh seniority within a company has made it known that you've got, you know, I've done this this way for 16 years instead of making it a teachable moment for other people to learn from so that they too can have 16 years where they are actually happy and fruitful in a company. Yeah, absolutely. How did you, how did you end up at SOM? Oh gosh, it's a long story. (laughs) My LinkedIn is public. Um, So (laughs) how I ended up at SOM, Um, always on the quest for better, honestly, uh, Christian, And uh, I started working, as you know, from the time I was in university. So in that time, I've worked in a a variety of scales. I've worked in my first like proper job out of school was at Jacobs Engineering in Morristown. So big E, little A. Um, And I've worked in firms that were sort of mom and pop and a very posh cat. Uh, situation, which (laughs) I realized like a super small firm that's vested in um, like residential is probably not for me. Um, And it's trial and error a lot of times. Um, I think that I was always on the quest to find where I felt comfortable and I felt like I was growing. And before SOM, I spent about five years working on healthcare specifically, like specialized firms um the last one i was at array architecture was array architects was um i i've never liked my coworkers so much like we, we're still in contact we're at weddings with each other and so on a fantastic group of people great clients but i was sort of at the point in my career where i was approaching that 10-year uh, mark and i think for a lot of us who who have been actively working as architects and we're licensed. That's a lot. That's often the time that we start questioning things a lot. Like, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? And there was an opportunity because I've always been involved in stuff outside of work. I think the difference with coming to SOM was that at the very beginning, I said to them, listen, I'm involved in this. I care about X. I care about diversity and inclusion. I care about women in architecture and these are the things that i am doing and these are the things that i'm bringing to the table in addition to like my 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 hard skills and here are my soft skills and i i think going in like that as opposed to sort of i think often we sort of lead with the things that we want to put on our resume Mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily indicative of the people that we actually are um i think that that was helpful i my my now um 
like Boston supervisor who I work quite often with, I'd met her through the Beverly Willis Foundation as one of their emerging leaders. I was in the the uh, inaugural cohort of that. Um, and I got to see, I got to be in the room with women who were coming from engineering and architecture and, you know, really at that sort of 10 year mark also mm -hmm. and wanting to push it forward. Um, so having the, the coming full circle and being able to like now work with Julia on projects like Manhattan West and, you know, also like bounce ideas off of each other in terms of how we can make our practice more equitable um, is fantastic. Like I'm leading up the MWBE participation in a lot of the projects that we, after all of the pursuits that we're going after mm -hmm. right now. Um, and just really trying to, on both sides of the table, see, uh, progress really, yeah. you know, it's great to hear that, you know, first of all, I love the idea that you come in with, Hey, these are all the things that I do. These are all the things that are important to me. Um, yes, I would like to work here too, but these are, these are priorities as well. And I'm going to make them all work. I I've talked about this before on the podcast and another other podcasts that that to me is the ideal person that we're looking for. Someone that comes in and says, like, we have a musician here mm -hmm. uh, who put out his, his first album and it's really important to him. Yes. And my attitude is go for it, mm -hmm. you know, do, do what you got to do. And, and we'll figure the work stuff out. And in the meantime, like, I love the idea that you're super passionate about one thing and you also work here. It's great. Like, just just keep going, you know, and, and the more the merrier kind of thing. So. It kind of has to be both because I find that people who are passionate about things, about architecture, but then about other things, they are so dynamic and they are the people that you want to work on with. You know, they're the people that you want to staff on your teams. They are the people that, you know, you're excited for the client to meet because they, they have lots of points of of reference. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Um, and honestly, coming to SOM for me was, I think, just an understanding of who I am and going back to the self-exploration that I, I spoke about earlier. I wanted to change scales. I wanted to bring my knowledge of healthcare and like, you know, other, I've worked in different typologies as well, that sort of like institutional knowledge. I wanted to bring that to a firm that one was established and had the scale where I felt like I could actually grow locally, international, and sure. internationally. And that, that has been for the most part the case. And being able again to um, work with people that I got to meet outside, like my first day, well, walking around and, you know, meeting people. And, and Julia turns to me and she goes, you kind of know everybody, but mm -hmm. that's, that's from being at the center for architecture and having that sort of spirit of collaboration everywhere that I go. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about, um, Wallen and, <laughs> Wallen and Dob. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Wallen and Dob. Um, kind of how did it, how did it come about, you know, your philosophy in terms of, you know, putting it out on Instagram and, and, um, and then I also want to hear a little bit about, you know, all your speaking engagements and mm -hmm. how did that come about? Because you're, you're, you're out at some big events and doing some big speeches. How did, how did all of that happen? I would say, so I'll answer your first question. I'll go in order. Um, so Wallen and Dobb, uh, and I realize it's like probably a funny name, but those of us who have been educated in architecture probably remember that that day in art, in uh, architectural history where they talked about Wattle and Dobb, mm -hmm. which is a method of construction that is sometimes thought of as rudimentary. But as we go towards more sustainable um, and, you know, using local materials, we realize that the process of of Wattle and Dobb construction is actually one of the first sustainable uh, building practices. So uh, Wattle and Dobb, for those who are not familiar with it, is a it's like an interwoven uh, uh, building system where you use, you know, sticks and uh, or you can use stones. And then there's somewhat of a, a, a adhesive that sort of binds all of that together. So just in the building materials that I just mentioned, there is this level of like cohesion and collaboration and so on. Uh, my maiden name was Wallen Robinson. Mm. So it's kind of a, I like you if you follow me on Instagram, you'll realize that I, I have a thing with uh, linguistics and I, I like a play on words. So Wallen uh, from my maiden name and this idea of collaborative, uh, building collaboratively, um, that's how Wallen and Dobb came to be. 
And I think there are so many things that I was involved with outside of like architecture proper that were supportive to architecture and supportive to the field. And I wanted a way to sort of create a level of cohesion around them. So I created Wallen and Dob, which is really a vehicle to work with other people in a meaningful way that hopefully will tie itself back to the industry um, and create a vehicle for like education and experiences and really um, looking to empower people. Like we talk often about the education, empowerment, and um, all of like basically elevating folks as well. Sure. So, um, so that, that's one thing. And I think we're in, we're in the middle of a transition right now with like what that is and how it's going to, going to be useful to people. Um, we created nine nodes, which is basically a short form method of, cre- of sharing information because I realized that being very close to New York City and working here, there are a number of events that happen that I can attend. But let's say you are like the the one of the few architects that's in the middle of the Midwest. I'm, I'm horrible at geography somewhere. <laughs> but, but if you're in the middle of the country and there may not be a super strong AIA presence or a NOMA presence, that my hope was that Wallen and Dob could be a vehicle to share the information that's out there so that people are approaching architecture with knowledge and hopefully creating their own experiences as well. Um, The speaking engagement sort of happened organically. Um, As a project manager, I tend to, like I'm very fond of a good calendar and and planning ahead. (laughs) And a lot of what I did uh, in my capacity as co-chair of diversity and inclusion was the programming. And I realized often that when I looked around the room at some of the like proper architecture events, there were a lot of people that that um, were not diverse from a number of demographics, right? Not just from color, race, creed, whatever, but more so from like the the ages of the people attending. There were, some of the the programming was not always compelling to right. a person who is, let's say, zero to ten years out or in school right? In university or, you know, in middle school or what have you. And I realized that for myself, that period of time, seventh grade and onwards was a, was a, a specific period of time where you, exposure was really important, being able to see what's out there. Because when you're that age, you're afforded a certain amount of time that is usually lost forever when you get to my age. Um, (laughs) So creating programs that were compelling and that were going to resonate with that particular group of like, you know, young adults and people who are just starting their profession was super important to me. So I spent a lot of time making sure that we would hear new voices and it's not just like the star architect that you're hearing from that you know when you're in school that seems like so far away from where you are yeah and reaching out to the fellow emerging professionals and working across other you know committees to create co-create programming was what i did um and in so doing i think it created an an opportunity for exposure for me where after you know i guess people who were not sick of my voice would reach out to me and say, you know, like, I want to hear your thoughts on this and I want to hear your thoughts on that. And my approach is a lot more um, organic overall. Like I like to speak with people. Mm-hmm. I like to hear from people. And it's 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 much more like, um, it, it's less of this sort of, uh, I'm going to stand and deliver and you're going to listen to me sort of thing. Like during my time on the committee, we tried to make sure that there were many more panels. So you would hear a range of voices and experiences than somebody just giving a keynote all the time. Um, And that's still what I'm doing now. Like I I sort of co-create programming with uh, CSU, which is a consortium for sustainable urbanization, which I'm a board member of. Um, And that has opened doors for me at working with the UN. I just moderated a discussion on sustainability and resiliency uh, last week. So it's I try not to always be the the person who is speaking because part of what I'm passionate about is opening up the doorways for other voices. I don't think it's it's not as important for me to be the the only voice 
as much as it is important for me to he- to bring other people and other voices to the table to that participate, to yeah. participate. That's yeah. where you get your your education from the range. Yeah, absolutely. What does you mentioned resiliency? And I'm always I, I'm fascinated by the word and sort of everybody's interpretation of it because <laughs> it comes up a lot. It's yes. come up in my children's education a lot. Um, and I think because of COVID, it's taken yeah. on all sorts of different meanings and, and definitions. So what, how do you define resiliency? Huh. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've had to question that quite a lot, I think, in the past 18 months, honestly, Christian. And I think, I would say it's a, it's a few things. For me, it's the main thing has been like knowing yourself. And I think from that, you can create an infrastructure like we we talk a lot about the infrastructure that was completely shaken in our external lives right like work this division of work and home having to wear the hat of a elementary school teacher (laughs) and you know a, a camp counselor and all of these things particularly as a parent who did a lot of the heavy lifting even before covid with a full-time job yeah. and then during covid a lot you know transitions meant that it was uh more of the same but way more intense um i'll, I'll tell a story i remember being on an interview for a project project interview and you know as a project manager you're sort of trying to create an opportunity for everybody on your team to know what they need to do understand the scope of what the client is asking so it's a lot of sort of uh behind the scenes making sure that everyone has what they need so that ultimately your client will have what they need um so you're you're tracking what the interview points are going to be what your presentation is going to be all of that so that's happening in the meantime my daughter has like an online test and i i couldn't i wasn't in the it was it would have been a massive upheaval to try and change the time of things. Then my littlest daughter, who's now four, was also potty training (laughs) as I'm giving like the talking points in the agenda of this meeting to a potential client. And like, I mean, when you talk about anxiety and being on edge and I, (laughs) I, I was like on on camera interviewing with my team and trying to make it so that everything is smooth and every like there's no indication that like life is also happening as my daughter's like figuring out potty training literally like in <laughs> down the hallway somewhere and like you know creating an uproar and then my daughter's also like doing school across from me at the dining table and just trying to like figure out that balance and i i realized that in that moment and many of the subsequent moments that were actual real life in in the pandemic that if you create a guide for yourself, like the infrastructure around you might completely fall apart. But if you have your own internal infrastructure of like what your what matters to you, what are your standards, what are your um, what are the things that regardless of all the things that change around you, what are you going to hold true to? And how are you going to operate? That creates such a level of peace for yourself and for the people around you that that's really that's really how I've been figuring it out. That's, that's a beautiful answer. I love it. I'm being <laughs> completely honest. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> you're kind of bringing it all back around. Mm-hmm. If you had to do it differently as far as your career is concerned, what might you have changed? Hmm. There's a part of me that would say that wants to say like just off the bat, there's nothing I would have changed because it uh, it all afforded itself to where I am right now. And it was all part of the experience. Right. If If it hadn't happened in that way, I don't think I would be able to operate in a meaningful way in my particular role and in my particular setting. Um, The flip side of that and like the sort of like diving deeper into that is I wish that I spent less time worrying, right? And just deep in self-doubt and feeling insecure and feeling like, you know, it wasn't like some something wasn't enough or like what was I doing wrong it's not to say that people are beyond reproach but I think it's it's really about your aspect of how you're looking at things your perspective on how you're looking at things 
and how what you can learn from it. I think I wish that I had the maturity that I have now when I was 20 mm-hmm. and when I was 18. And, uh, you know, I, I think my constant quest for better is, is it, it's been one of the best tools that I think I've, I've had embedded in me. But I think if I had had that with the sort of self, um, self-esteem or self-confidence when I was younger, I think I would have been able to see things faster. Mm. Right. Cause now, now you've, now that I am wiser, I, I think I have a lot more understanding of folks and like being, being able to be more perceptive and read the room and so on. I I wish I had what I have now back then. (laughs) Got it. I do. And I'm still working on it. Yeah. And it's going to, again, it'll continue to evolve. You know, it'll, it'll change, you know, in the next 10 years and 10 years after that and so on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Well, listen, um, thank you so much for being, my guest here on the anti-architect podcast and for being an important voice in our profession it, it really needs it and you're the perfect person to uh, to share that message and 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 carry it through thank you so much christian um so to see and read more about danny you can find her on instagram at danny cesario uh and on our linkedin of course and then for wallen and dob it's also on instagram which is wallen and dob or at wallen and dob at wallen and dob yeah yeah Perfect. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thank you.